Uh, Open up your Bibles to Genesis 18. Genesis 18. It's kind of a kind of an in-between chapter. It's kind of a chapter where it feels redundant and repetitive. It feels like we've already covered this about God making promises to Abraham and confirming those promises to um, Abraham that he would have a son through Sarah, his wife. And it also feels like it's just kind of just building up to the next chapter, which is Sodom and Gomorrah. But there is something very important for us to recognize here in Genesis 18. Uh, just, but first, just a few um, big picture observations about the chapter. Um, you'll notice as we work through it that this is really just kind of, a, uh, kind of a, a rest stop, as it were. God is on his way with two angels to visit Sodom and Gomorrah to see if the wickedness in that city is indeed as great as the rumors about it have been told to him, to use anthropomorphic language, uh, language that talks about God as though he's a man. Um, God is kind of stopping here to, to be with Abraham, and this is also another picture of Yahweh's friendship with Abraham. You see this in multiple different ways. God enjoys a meal with Abraham. God talks to Abraham. Um, um, God listens to Abraham. And, and we also see in this chapter this theme uh, repeated throughout it that, that God sees God sees and God knows. And see if you can just see that, that theme kind of flowing throughout the chapter. But most significant, what I really want you guys to pay attention today are the two big questions that are asked of God. Two big questions that are asked of God. The first question you see in verse 14 is anything too difficult for Yahweh? And the second question you see in verse 25, shall not the judge of all the earth do justice? Uh, Essentially, what we're going to think about today are these important, important questions. These are really important questions to actually grow faith. Asking and answering these questions are good for your faith. Your mom says, eat your vegetables. They're good for you. Your mom says, drink water. It's good for you, right? Uh, These are spiritual questions that are spiritually good for you. And sometimes your faith needs a good question asked of it. Or you need to ask yourself a good question about your God. More than maybe you need a good answer about your God, maybe you need a good question. Uh, Question number one, is anything too difficult for Yahweh? Question number two, shall not the judge of the earth do what is right? These two questions are, grow tremendous faith. And we see that even working in Abraham here, and I I pray that that works in you as well. Let's pray really quick. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for um, this morning that we're able to share in your word, and we pray that you would grow our faith through these questions that are asked. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so um, the the key and the, the desire, the aim here is to to kind of unpack these questions and what they reveal to us about our God. And I want you guys to be thinking, because I'm going to have you guys talk to each other at the end, and I'm going to ask you, which question is better for you? What what question does your faith need right now more? To know that nothing is impossible for God, or to know that God always does what is right? Which question is more helpful to your faith that sparks your faithful obedience? Um, But let's, let's talk about this. Uh, go to the next slide here. Do we have the clicker? 
Uh-oh, it's frozen. That's fine. Whatever. Let's do the, the first question first. And then and, and these, these are my two points. We're just going to go through both questions. The first question is, is anything too difficult for God? Is anything too difficult for God? That's the question we're going to be talking about. And I think the answer will become very obvious when you think about that question. Is anything too difficult for God? What kind of faith should that spark? We see um, um, chapter 18, verse 1. Then Yahweh appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. Now, Yahweh will gradually make his identity known. It doesn't seem as though Yahweh is going to just appear instantly, and Abraham's going to know exactly who Yahweh is. We'll see eventually that this is called a theophany, an appearing of God, kind of in a form, or or as a man, to an Old Testament saint. This happens every once in a while. And this is, of course, probably uh, an appearing of Jesus himself to Abraham, a pre-incarnate appearing of Jesus. It's a theophany. And he's appearing with two angels. We know that because Yahweh eventually stays with Abraham and sends the two angels to Sodom. And so we know, based on the way this one individual speaks, that it's Yahweh. And we know that most of all because 18 verse 1 says, Yahweh appeared to Abraham, and he appeared to Abraham in the heat of the day. Thank you. Oh, thank you. I see what you did there. All right. He appeared to Abraham in the heat of the day when, you know, you're, you're starting to feel a little tired, a little drifty, and you're starting to snooze a little bit. And, and then this is when these two guests appear, and you see that Abraham might not know who Yahweh is at the moment, but he definitely, he definitely acts as a man who knows Yahweh and how he treats these random strangers. And I'm, I'm thinking of Hebrews uh, 13.2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Most people assume that this passage in the New Testament is talking about Abraham right here. But notice what it says under the inspired pen of the Holy Spirit. Entertained angels without knowing it. Abraham didn't know exactly who he was entertaining, but he treated everyone as important because he was faithful to Yahweh. And he even demonstrates kind of a, a hospitality that's pretty extreme. And, and we would say, yeah, this, this fits into kind of the background, the way you treated strangers back then was like that. But, but Abraham seems to even go above and beyond in his manner of hospitality. Just look at the the things that he does that shows him to be a faithful man. Um, he, verse 2, lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing nearby. He saw, and he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. And he said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass by your servants, or please do not pass your servants by. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourself under the tree. And let me bring a piece of bread that you may refresh your hearts. After that, you may pass on, since in such a manner you have passed by your servant. And they said, so you shall do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, hurry, prepare three seahs of fine flour, knead it, and make bread cakes. And Abraham also ran to the herd and took a tender and choice calf and gave it to his young men, And he hurried to prepare it. Then he took curds and milk and the calf which he had prepared and placed it before them. And he was standing by them under the tree and they 
eight. He takes up the position, even he is an older man, a very wealthy man at this point, he takes up the position of a servant to serve his guests. And this is a, a common picture of hospitality in the ancient world. But just notice the the extremes that he goes to to honor this individual. Once again, I don't necessarily think he knows that this is the Lord yet. Sometimes you get little hints, but there's, there's no real suggestion that he knows this is the Lord. It, perhaps he does, based on his actions, but it seems as though, once again, he is just, he is just a truly faithful man who is showing hospitality. He, number, number one, he, 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 he gets a tender and choice calf and gives it to one of his young men. This, of course, could probably feed a small village. Uh, definitely three guys, right? He, he, he gives the very best calf that he has. Um, he also prepares curds of milk, and this is kind of an ancient uh, Bedouin kind of uh, uh, um, choice uh, morsel that helped you taste the meat a little bit more. But notice also he runs, and maybe this doesn't really stand out to you because everything you do, you run everywhere. But for, for an ancient man in the, in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, it's always a shock and a little bit weird to see an old man run. An old man never ran. It was undignified to show his, um, his, his, his heels, you could say like that. that, that an, an old man was never in a hurry. He always, he always walked slowly. And that's partially why the, the story of the prodigal son is so weird to the original hearers because we have a father running to meet an estranged son. And this is what we have here. We have an older man running to meet his guests. They are more important than his own dignity. And you also see not only the speed, but you also see the, the size of the feast that he prepares. I already mentioned this a little bit with the size of the calf. But uh, if, if you know anything about um, food, you know that three sias of fine flour is quite a lot. This is about 58 pounds of flour. Now, I like bread myself. I do, I really do. But uh, last time I sat down for a meal, I didn't eat 50 pounds worth of bread. You know how much, you know how much bread that is? That's, that is a 50-pound bag of flour, and Abraham whips all of this up just for three guests. So he is giving them an extravagant king-size feast right here. And, and even the, the language in the Hebrew is a little bit out of breath, if you ask me. It's kind of funny. You can kind of see Abraham, he just, just kind of just blasts into Sarah's tent. You know, she's still you know, in my, in my mind, she's still, you know, blowing her hair, you know, hair dryer, you know, she's like, quick, get, get, get 50, 50 pounds of flour, make it into bread really quick. Uh, what, what else does he say? He says, hurry, uh, also um, knead and, and then bake some bread. And then he's gone before she can even ask any questions or even turn the hair dryer off to hear what he said. He's just so fast. That's how quick the, the Hebrew is even sounding. So once again, we see Abraham hurrying with speed and with diligence and with extravagance to honor these guests. Does he know the identity of this guest? Well, it's not totally clear, but we definitely know that Abraham is simply being a faithful man of God. And sometimes you know uh, the, the faithfulness of your friendship to God based on how friendly you are to those people around you. Abraham mirrors the hospitality of God who befriends strangers. And that's what we see here in Abraham. He is quick to serve others and seek the interests of others because he is a man who has been pursued by God and who has been befriended by God as well. Now, I wouldn't say that he instantly knew who this was, and once again, I would say it was only 
after the meal that probably the identity of Yahweh really appeared to Abraham. Notice how he reveals himself to Abraham. After they're done eating, verse 9 says, Then they said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he, and he said, There, in the tent. And he said, I will surely return to you at this time next year, and behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. Sarah was past childbearing. And Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And Yahweh said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a son am I, when I am so old? Is anything, here's our question, is anything too difficult for Yahweh? At the appointed time, I will return to you, and at this time next year, Sarah will have a son. Then Sarah, of course, denied it, however, said, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. Notice here, Yahweh reveals himself. And how does Yahweh reveal himself? Through his knowledge of people and his knowledge of even the thoughts and intentions of their heart. Notice Sarah's location. When this happens, she is in a tent. She is not at the meal. Uh, Yahweh, uh, the theophany, you know, the, the, the picture of God in this man can't see her face. You know, sometimes I can kind of tell when somebody's mocking me in their mind, right? Because I see their face and I, and I know what they're thinking, right? You guys don't believe me right now, obviously. I can tell by, by the way you're looking at me. But uh, no, this is not where Sarah is. She's not at the meal. She is in the tent hiding. And notice, she is listening at the door. What do you normally do when you're trying to sneakily listen to someone else's conversation? You're trying not to be seen, right? And so, so Sarah is out of view. And notice also, Sarah is behind um, the Lord's back. That's, that's definitely what we see here as well in verse 10, right? The, the tent of the door, which was behind him. And, and Yahweh knows what Sarah is thinking without having to look at her face, without technically knowing that she's there. Abraham just says she's over there in the tent. Um, but he already knows what she is thinking. And you notice that Sarah here laughs just like Abraham did in Genesis 17. But this is probably a different laughter. Abraham's laughter is almost more of a, that's too wonderful, I can't believe it. Sarah's laughter appears here to be almost a bitterness of unbelief, right? And and, and maybe you, you, you can understand this a little bit, but when when you start to you know, stack up years and disappointments start to happen to you, you start to kind of like put a layer on yourself of self-protection so you don't get hurt anymore. So maybe this laughter is just year after year after year of disappointment. I don't want to believe I'm going to have kids anymore. Matter of fact, the, the text you see there emphasizes how old she is. Three different times it says she's old. She herself says, I am old and decrepit, basically, right? The text itself says she is past the period where women can have kids. She is not interested in believing that she's going to have kids anymore. And once again, for, for a woman, especially in ancient days, this is a very bitter reality. I am never going to have a kid of my own. I'm never going to please my husband in that way. I'm never going to have the joy of a child in that way. And Sarah, has been, it's been years since Sarah has hoped that she'd have kids. Following Abraham, being his wife, has been difficult for her. And for many years, she has covered that difficulty with just a hopelessness that now communicates itself don't you see it don't you feel it in this laughter like 
That's the only way she can protect herself from being hurt. I don't want to even believe that this is possible anymore. So she laughs in, in that kind of way. But, but notice here, and this is why Yahweh has come. Yahweh has come to confirm the promise, not only to Abraham, but also to Sarah. Why? So that they both can walk in obedience to Yahweh. They both need to believe, in other words, that Yahweh is promising something to them in order to actually pursue having a kid, right? They, they both need to believe. And so Yahweh, in his kindness and his condescension, is coming to Sarah in her unbelief and refer, uh, re, uh, re, uh, repeating the promise to her. Why? Why? We need to hear God's promises, but why? So that we can walk in them and so that we can obey them. That's why Yahweh is here. And that's always why we need to see God, to know our God, and to hear his promises to us so that we can walk forward in obedience. Faith always results in obedience. And faith requires that we know who our God is and what his promises are. But, but first we need to be faced with a question. And this is the question that Yahweh asks Abraham and really asks Sarah, right? Is anything impossible for me, right? If I have made a promise, is it impossible that I will bring it about, right? Will you believe in me more than you'll believe in yourself, right? That's what, that's what God is asking Abraham and Sarah. And, and, and the big idea here is, listen, if, if God is all-knowing, if God can see your heart, God is all-powerful as well. That is the promise that God is bringing to Abraham and to Sarah. Look, I can see your unbelief in your heart. But the fact that I can see and know you should also confirm that I am the one speaking to you and I'm giving you a true promise here and you need to walk in obedience to that promise, right? But, but the big question of faith is, is anything impossible for God? Do I actually believe that there is something out there that God cannot do? Well, yeah, you could say he can't you know, lift a rock that he's made too heavy. You could say that, right? God can't sin. But if God is actually, think about it here, if God is making a promise to you and you see it in Scripture, the thing that's coming between you and walking in obedience according to that promise is your belief in his person and his character. Is God able to do this? Now, we could talk about what this looks like in your life, I suppose, right? Maybe there's like big worldly kinds of unbelief swirling around in your head, right? Like, could God actually create the world in six days, right? Is the, the Bible really the Word of God? Is it really inspired, right? There comes a point, though, when you face those questions, you just need to ask, is anything too difficult for Yahweh? If he wants to, he could create the world in one second. He doesn't need even seven days, right? And this grows your faith, right? When you think about who your God is, and you think about the questions that your faith is posed with, all you need really is to ask yourself this question. Is anything too difficult for Yahweh? And your answer will be always no. Because he's shown me his character again and again and again. He is a God who can do anything at any time. And matter of fact, we see here he seems to delay only because he wants to sharpen our focus on himself so that our faith will be totally in him and not in ourself, right? He delays his promises so that we will grow in our faith towards him. Maybe, maybe your doubts are the worldly kind of doubts like that, or, or maybe they're more of the kind of inward 
secret, sneaky kind of doubts. Like, will, will God actually sanctify me in this way? Does God actually have any ability to cause me to change in this manner? Is, 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 is this sin impossible for me to overcome? And you need to ask the same question. Is anything impossible for God? Well, if I walk in obedience and faithfulness to him, he promises me that I will start pursuing him and, and starting to accumulate new habits and through the power of the Spirit, I can walk in newness of life. But that begins with a question like this, is anything impossible for him? You might not be the same person you are today in 10 years from now after 10 years of faithfulness. And that's because nothing is impossible for Yahweh. But once again, that faith that follows God in obedience first requires a good question. When you're faced with difficulty, when you're following God and something seems impossible, I don't think I can do that, you need to ask yourself this question. Is anything impossible for God? And notice the, the real answer to this question is, he, he is able. That's what your faith needs to always be thinking, right? My God is able. That's the answer to the question, and that is an answer that sparks obedience because it sparks faith, right? My God is able, therefore I should obey him. Let's look at our second question, though. Oop, I went down. God is right, but this is the answer to the second question. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Shall not the judge of the earth do what is right? The, the second, second point here in the outline is God is right. The story continues, verse 16, and then the men arose from there and went down towards Sodom, and, Autumn, and Abraham was walking with them and to send them off. Now Yahweh said, shall I conceal from Abraham what I am about to do, since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have known him, so that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of Yahweh to do righteousness and justice, so that Yahweh may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him." So Yahweh said, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see whether they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me, and if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom, while Abraham was still standing before Yahweh. Then Abraham came near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put to death the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you, and then here's our question, shall not the judge of all the earth do justice? And here's the basic question of your faith, right? Not only is God able, but also Will God do right? Will the judge of all the earth do right? Now, maybe this isn't a question you've thought about, but this story here gives us an opportunity to think right thoughts about God in a very helpful way. But interestingly enough, before we kind of get into that, notice verse 17 through 19, what's going on there? Is, is Yahweh speaking to Abraham? Actually, if you think about it, what might be happening here is Yahweh is first speaking to himself. 
in verse 17 through 19. Notice, Yahweh says seemingly to himself, shall I conceal from Abraham what I'm about to do, since Abraham will surely be um, a great and mighty nation. And then verse 20, what happens? Then he starts speaking to Abraham. It could be that Yahweh here is speaking to himself and pondering what he's about to do before he even brings Abraham in. But, but th- this, by the way, is, is probably what's going on in, in Genesis 6. Verse 6, Yahweh regretted that he made man, of course, this is before the flood, and he said, I will surely blot out man. And then we see in Genesis 13, then God said to Noah, I'm going to surely blot out man from the face of the earth. So what we have here is, is Yahweh's first talking to himself, and he's determining to bring Abraham into the conversation for some reason. Because of his love for Abraham, because of his friendship towards Abraham, you could say, because of his steadfast love towards Abraham. But in verse 20 is the kicker there. He declares that he is going to go down to Sodom to see if the outcry that he has heard is indeed true. Outcry, of course, refers to a scream of distress or, or someone receiving some sort of brutal punishment or something like that. It refers to injustice happening in the city, evil happening in the city, causing the victims to cry out in suffering and in pain. And it's saying that God has heard this, but now he is going down to see if it is really true. Now, before we kind of get to what in the world, why in the world God would have to do that, just, just, just to give a little background, we will definitely see in the next chapter that the evil of Sodom and Gomorrah is intense and graphic and real and extreme, you could say. We will see that the sexual perversion of the city is horrendous. The entire city is seeking to rape someone that comes into their city. But we also know from elsewhere in Scripture that this is not the only kind of evil that Sodom and Gomorrah is committing down there. Ezekiel 16, uh, 49 and 50 says this, Behold, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. By the way, this is Ezekiel talking to Israel, really trying to shame them by referring to Sodom and Gomorrah as their sister. She and her daughters had lofty pride, abundant food, and quiet ease, but she did not strengthen the hand of the afflicted and the needy. Then they were haughty, and committed themselves, wait, I think this is the next chapter, there you go. Then they were haughty and committed abominations before me, so I removed them when I saw it. Notice, notice the, the evil of Sodom isn't just their sexual perversion, but their pride and their arrogance and the rebellion against God, right? They had so much abundance and good gifts given to them, but they returned all of that goodness from God with rebellion and pride. Uh, Sodom is filled with every form of rebellion against God, and you could even say that they were first proud against God, but then this also led to every other form of evil that they could think of to rebel against God. This is, this is where human rebellion always starts, though, right? Pride, arrogance against God, right? I am not going to return thanks to you. I'm not going to recognize you as the good and giving God that you are. Instead, I am going to choose to be my own Lord and I'm going to choose my own kingdom above yourself. But, but why does God need, now this is an interesting question, why does God need to go down to see if the outcry against him is true? We just saw, we just saw that God can see through a tent behind his back 
and know exactly what's going on in the heart of Sarah. Why does Yahweh now need to go down to see whether the evil is indeed correct? Let me, let me just kind of explain it to you this way. Right? God does this for our sake. God does this for Abraham's sake, but God does this for our sake, right? We need to know that our God sees us always, right? That's, that's, that's the lesson that we saw with Sarah in the tent, right? My God always sees me. Therefore, I can trust his word. He always sees everything, and I can trust him. But we also need to know that not only does our God always see us, but our God always sees rightly. Our God always sees every situation that he judges rightly, right? God is going down there to affirm to Abraham that I, when I judge this city, will judge it rightly. And, and this is just a picture of God's knowledge that he is actually condescending himself to reveal to Abraham and to us, right? Whenever God judges evil, it's as though he has been walking among them for hours and days and weeks and knows them personally and intimately. He knows evil sinners perfectly as though he had been walking down among them. And that is the knowledge by which he judges sinners, right? He judges us rightly. And this is the message he is trying to communicate to Abraham. But notice, this is weird to us. Yahweh lingers. He lingers as though he wants to provoke Abraham to prayer. God didn't have to. God didn't have to come down to Sodom and all, but he condescended. He condescended first to remind Abraham of his promises through Sarah, and to remind Sarah as well. But now he's condescending to show Abraham his righteousness But now it almost seems as though he's condescending to linger before Abraham so that Abraham can come to him in prayer. Do you think God wants us to pray to him? Do you think God wants us to intercede for evil sinners or for the righteous that are suffering? Yes. And God is lowering himself, humbling himself to show us how much he wants us to pray for these things, even places as lost as Sodom. God is lingering to cause Abraham to pray. Let's let's just look at what Abraham does. Notice, first off, Abraham says, Hey, if there's 50 righteous, will you wipe out the righteous with the wicked? Far be it from you, Yahweh, to treat one as the same, right? This is a question of God's righteousness. If you are right, you will not treat the righteous and the wicked the same. And if there's 50 righteous people in this city, far be it from you, to destroy the city. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is right? But then Abraham continues. In verse 26, you see uh, Yahweh's response, verse 26. Uh, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous people within the city, then I will spare the whole place on their account. Notice, God is not sparing Sodom because of his mercy towards the sinners. He is sparing Sodom over his care for the righteous here. Now, just to point this out theologically, God doesn't always spare a whole city just because there's righteous people in it. Sometimes it's part of the, the, the effect of living in a fallen world that the righteous suffer with the wicked, right? But, but notice here, God is willing to spare a city simply because of the presence of 
righteous individuals. Now, now think about that. That's interesting, right? Your presence on earth can have a saving effect. So Jesus refers to his disciples as the salt of the earth, probably referring to the preserving qualities of salt, right? And your even presence on earth is preserving the earth from judgment. Now, I'm a dispensationalist, so I totally lean into this, right? When God chooses to remove the elect, judgment is going to happen. Our presence here is a mercy, and even if our presence is a very pathetic presence, like uh, Lot's presence, the, the least salty of salty individuals, if you ask me, we still have a merciful effect from God. But notice, God is moving here for the sake of his righteousness, right? I won't do that for 50 righteous people. Verse 27, then Abraham said, now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes. Suppose 50 righteous are lacking five. Kind of a long way to say, 45. Um, Will you destroy the whole city because of five? And he said, I will not destroy it for 45. Then he spoke to him yet again and said, suppose 40 are found there. And he said, I will not do it on account of 40. Then he said, oh, may the Lord not be angry. Shall I speak? Suppose 30 are found there. Then he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Then he said, now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of 20. Then he said, oh, may the Lord not be angry, and I shall speak only this once. Suppose ten are found there, and he said, I will not destroy it on account of ten. And commentators suggest that Abraham could kind of see the writing on the wall. God is starting to get a little bit short in his responses, and Abraham says, okay, ten. I'll stop with ten, right? Or maybe Yahweh just cut off the conversation right there as well, because verse 33, as soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham, Yahweh departed, and Abraham returned to his place. Abraham talked Yahweh down all the way to ten righteous people in Sodom. Now, why is this here? I mean, most of you, I'm assuming, know the next chapter doesn't go well for Sodom and Gomorrah, right? You kind of know this story already. Why do we have Abraham here talking God down from 50 all the way to 10 if God's going to do what he's going to do anyway? And, And what does this kind of mean for you and for me? Well, think about it this way. Think about it this way. This, number one, demonstrates God's righteousness, doesn't it? This demonstrates God's righteousness. It demonstrates, as you could say, oh, we don't have that slide anymore, sorry. It demonstrates that God does right in all that he does. He is righteous. There is never error with God in anything that he does. And it also shows that his judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah is founded, right? He cannot find even ten righteous people in Sodom. And he walked through the entire city. And the three people that he found, he basically had to drag out of the city, right? Their judgment was just and right, right? And whenever God judges, he judges justly. That's what we see here. 
in, in the end, it's kind of ironic, too. We see God's righteousness on display, don't we? Because God doesn't do kind of what Abraham is asking of him to do. God doesn't spare the city, and he doesn't treat the righteous as the wicked, right? He actually spares the righteous. In fact, Second Peter 2, verse 9 basically says, look at how God kept Sodom and Gomorrah under judgment and also spared righteous Lot. God knows how to keep the wicked under judgment, and God also knows how to save the righteous. But, but the long and short of it is, my God always does what is right. I can always count on my God to do what is right. And, and, and Abraham needs this. You and I need this. Abraham needs to know that his God is going to do what is right. Abraham knows when the smoke of Sodom fills his horizon that my God has done what is right. Because my God is faithful and he will do what is right. And every time he judges, it is from perfect, accurate knowledge. This demonstrates God's righteousness. But I would also suggest to you this, and this this is the big application for you, right? Sometimes God is provoking us to pray because we need to change more than he needs to change. Now, I'm kind of tongue-in-cheek there. God never needs to change because God is always right. And sometimes through prayer that might not end the way you want it to, God changes you in your attitude, and in your mindset, and draws you closer to him, and causes you to be more faithful to him as a result, right? You can say through prayer, I have prayed to the one who always judges justly. I have spoken to the judge of the earth who will always do what is right, and I trust him impeccably in this situation, regardless of what happens to me, regardless of what happens to my family, the judge of the earth will do what is right. And I will pray and I will appeal to his mercy, knowing that he is merciful and eager to accept sinners into his fold. I will pray till that end with all the eagerness and zeal that I have. But In the end of the day, whatever happens to me, whatever happens to my family, whatever happens in my situation, I can trust that the judge of the earth will do what is right. Because he sees my situation fully. He sees me clearly. And he will always do what is right. Now I would suggest to you, Abraham needs to know this lesson. Abraham's faith needs to grow in this way. Because it is about to be tested as his nephew is about to be nearly destroyed with the city that he's in. But also, when Genesis 22 comes along and God says, you must love me even more than your family, even more than your son, Abraham has to say, as he's following God through faith, my God always does what is right. And if I'm walking in obedience to him, I can trust that he'll always do what is right. And I can rely on him and trust on him, even when I don't even understand what he's up to, I can believe that my God is able to do anything, even raise my son from the dead, and I can trust him that he is always right in what he does. Even when the world around me screams that he is wrong, I trust that he is right, because I have spent time with my God, and I have seen his face, and I have known his promises. That, that is why God sometimes goads us into prayer. 
That is also, I would suggest to you sometimes, why God makes your circumstances so difficult because he wants to grow you in that faith. That you can hold on to him regardless of the circumstances. And you can say, my God is right and my God is able. And that's, that's, that's how God produces faith, right? Once again, that's what Abraham's about, right? God is growing his faith. Abraham is more and more becoming faithful to his God. Abraham more and more is being a model of obedience to his God. Abraham more and more is trusting his God. Abraham more and more is loving his God. Abraham more and more is loyal to his God. Our God is perfect in his ways, and he exercises his all-powerfulness and his omniscience, his all-knowing, towards us so that he may grow us in our faith. That is a wonderful thing. And it is a wonderful thing to be a child of God because you have a God interested in growing your faith. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for um, this moment in time we were able to contemplate you through your word. And I pray that this would be helpful for us to simply trust that you are always able in all of our circumstances to do what you promise to do and we can trust in you for that. And you are always right in all you do. I pray that our faith would grow through these truths. Amen.